It was totally normal, standard practice in the world of that day. So, and it was an issue. So, if you went to to pick up some meat, you know, to cook, you you would go to uh, the market, and it would be out on a trestle table or something like that, simple table, and it would be laid out. They weren't wearing gloves. They didn't have labels. You know, this comes. This is. It doesn't have a Best Buy date on. They're waving the flies off, and all sorts and. But your best bet, if you wanted to eat a meat meal, would be actually to go to the temple, which is, and that was a, a common um, practice. So some of the offerings were done privately, some were done publicly, and if you were doing it publicly, then a portion would go to the priests, another lot would go to the public officials, and you could then invite your mates along to, to have a meal with you, in the temple complex quite often um, and the rest was then sold in the, in the market so that was what was generally done now I want you to come back with me to un- try and understand where they're coming from so I want you to come back with me all the way to the day of Pentecost and I want you to put yourself in the shoes of, of a God-fearing Gentile so as you probably know, they had three major feasts in the Jewish year. You had Passover, seven weeks later you had Pentecost, and then there was a summer break, and then the next one was the Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of Weeks. So we, uh, we, we've got these, this middle feast, and people used to descend from all over the place Jews from everywhere, Jewish converts, God-fearing Gentiles. And I want you to put your shoes in, yourself into one of those shoes. You turn up and you are in the right place at the right time to hear Peter's speech in Acts 2. And as you listen, your heart pulsates as something inside tells you this is authentic. And you take the plunge and you become one of the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost who come to faith in Jesus as resurrected Lord, son of David, saviour and Jewish Messiah. And you'd love to have stayed there, wouldn't you? But you can't. You've got to go home. And that's 300 miles north for you because you live in a very busy city in Syria at that time called Antioch. And it's right at the crossroads of some really major east-west and north-south trade routes. And to your absolute delight on the way back, you discover you're not the only one from Antioch. And you start to meet and the more join, more people join in, sort of family and friends, and soon it's the biggest group of Christians outside of Jerusalem. And you get on with your faith. But questions of faith come up thanks to some unwelcome and unauthorised visitors. The question that is, how much of the Old Testament law should you keep? 
as a new Christian because these folk were coming up and saying, actually, you need to be full Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the whole Jewish law. Um, And other people were raising questions of conscience. Should you eat food that's been sacrificed to these idols? Because it might mean going to the temple for one thing. And some of you worry anyway that buying and eating meat from a pagan temple is as good as participating in the sacrifice to this false god. So it's a real issue. So you send trusted church members, Paul and Barnabas, 300 miles south again to consult Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. And you're taken seriously, or Paul and Barnabas are taken seriously. And the result is this so-called Jerusalem Council, and you find that in Acts 15. So after this great conflab, Peter sums it all up. And the answer is that the new non-Jewish Gentile believers only needed to avoid a few things, four of them. Um, I think it's called the, uh, the, the quadrangle or something or other, if you like that sort of thing. Um, Paul and Barnabas then return with a verdict. And one of those items is don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. So and therefore they go back, taking two others from Jerusalem to verify what they're saying is, their reporting is true. And they're not just giving back their own opinions from the first place. Well, I've just condensed about 20 years of, of early church history into, into a couple of minutes. Um, but it was, it was that, about that long, give or take five years. But another five years later, and the gospel, the message of Jesus is spreading all the way around the Roman Empire. And it's reached the next country but one. So it's leapt over Turkey, then called Asia Minor. And it's now in Greece and it's in Corinth. And it's probably already taking root in Rome at that point as well. But they're dealing with the same issues all over again. Um, and Paul, this time, is on the spot and he's got anyone to consult. He has to deal with it. Well, hopefully that kind of deals with a little bit of the background and gives us a little bit of insight into it. But what's the relevance to us? Um, I want to, uh, to, to tell you a, a little story, if I may. Um, a few years ago, uh, I was on call in the surgery, and we used to do a morning and an afternoon each, pretty much. And, uh, and we would get ring-throughs from the practice nurses periodically, often because they were addressing a wound or something that needed some antibiotic. Nurse called me through and thought this was going to be a standard job. So she was doing a dressing for an elderly gent who'd broken his leg. He had a plaster of Paris on his leg. And, uh, and it was one of the old ones. They're changed now. But they used to be, they're really white. And everybody used to love to sign their names on it. You remember the ones? And doodle on them and things like that. And they used to crumble at the edges. Um, 
But anyway, so this hadn't crumbled very well at the edge because it actually rubbed uh, his, an, an ulcer into the lower part of his leg. So this chap had tried to protect this, this ulcer um, by sort of putting some padding underneath it. Anyway, so it was pretty manky by the time he got to the nurse. And she had had him up on the couch with his, his legs, you know, sort of horizontal. And she'd taken the dressing off and something fell out. And the little something that fell out wiggled. <laughs> and as she removed the dressings, it became really obvious that the wound was infested with maggots. Um, which, incidentally, were doing quite a good job because they really like chewing away at the, at the nasty stuff, so they actually leave the clean stuff alone. Anyway, the point of that story wasn't to deal with the question, um, what's for lunch? Um, the point of the story is that, is that underneath this passage, underneath the surface, there are some little maggoty issues that actually could do with exposing. And I'm going to uh, tackle that by asking us three questions. One is a question about conscience. One is a question about idolatry. And the third is a question about love. You ready? So the, the first one's uh, a, uh, just a, a simple opener, and that's how well-tuned is your conscience. How well-tuned is it? Conscience is a really interesting facility, actually. I mean, some people refer to it as our moral compass, our sense of right and wrong. And that's actually not a bad way of describing it, really, is it? And it can be really used by God, by the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, or the opposite. But it can be misdirected. So if you're talking about the compass, standard compass, and taking that as an analogy, it's actually not a bad analogy because... If you follow a compass, the compass needle will point magnetic north. But true north is actually 20 to 21 degrees further round. So actually, if you were planning on going north, your compass would actually be misleading. Yeah? So worse still, geologists tell us uh, the poles completely switch polarity every few thousand years. Well, our consciences can be a bit like that as well, so they can be skewed. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, and you probably didn't notice it when we went through it, that his conscience may be clear, so conscience is giving you a thumbs up, but that doesn't necessarily make you innocent. Thumbs down. So the Apostle John, when he's writing a letter to, um, to the church in 1 John 3, he states that if our hearts, our consciences, are convicting us, thumbs down, that doesn't necessarily mean we're guilty because God is greater than our hearts, quote unquote, thumbs up. So actually, consciences can be wrong in either direction. Which, of course, uh, raises the question, what governs our consciences? What determines them? Is it our parents' views? They're pretty powerful. Is it the opinion of our peer group? Is it the BBC? 
or Hollywood? Or is it Scripture? And of course, you know what I'm going to say here, that Scripture is the only reliable tuning mechanism. So the question to us is, are we actually reading our Bibles deeply enough for it to permeate our thinking and actually change our instincts? Otherwise, we risk being culturally blind. Anybody heard that phrase before? Culturally blind. So we become so steeped in our own society's values and too desensitized to see where we might be living lives which are less than wholly Christian. And I think for myself, I think that's one of the things that I fear the most is that we just kind of blindly go on really without thinking hard enough and scripturally enough to change course. Okay, so here's the, the, the second little backety issue. Are we really free from idolatry? Have you ever noticed um, that whenever Paul talks about God, if you read of any of his letters, he starts talking about God, you can, he gets excited. You can actually sense his passion. He reminds them in this case, an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. And even though there are so-called gods, and there are many of them, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. He goes poetic in Hebrew poetic forms. So one God from whom all things came and for whom we live. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And we do live, don't we? Because of him, because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And chances are that none of us have effigies in our houses, although I guess you can't take that entirely for granted, because we do live in a multicultural society, in a very multicultural town, just as the Corinthians were. So it actually is relevant these days. But idols and false gods were their past. They'd had to make a clean break. And many Christians around the world still have to make that clean break. It's a very real thing. For if you're living in Africa or parts of Asia, then you'll have to do that. So do we know in our heart's core that Jesus is the one and only way to God? Because the modern Western worldview has rode all the way back to Corinth in that there are not just many gods, I suppose, but certainly many ways to God. And there are Not. And as believers, are we actually prepared to stand up and speak up and stand our ground when we're accused of being arrogant? And if you're thinking, well, David, that's still not me, that's not for me, there's always idolatry and miniature to consider, innocent things that that play too large a role, occupy too large a space in our hearts and our time and end up displacing God. They're not wrong in themselves, but they've grown too big. I'm not going to enumerate them. There there are many and various. And besides, I have to leave something for somebody to talk about in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. And the last question is perhaps the most maggoty of the lot, actually. How loving are you? 
If I ask, what's the opposite of love? You are going to say hate. hate. And if I ask you, what's the opposite of pride? You're going to say humility. humility. Absolutely. But you wouldn't normally think, would you, of pride being puffed up as being the antithesis, the opposite of love, would you? But here, Paul is actually saying that they are. The two are contradictory. How come? Pride here, just a little kind of rider. Pride here does not mean dignity. Pride here does not mean self-respect. Those are absolutely A-OK. They are God-given and they're fine. So pride is an unhelpful word in that respect. This is referring to the sort of know-it-all superiority. And that sort of knowledge, it's all about me. It's inward-focused. Whereas love is outward-focused, directed towards others. Uh, Knowledge, says Paul, puffs up, can make us smug. But love builds up. Knowledge, of course, isn't a waste of time. um, But it has to be digested and filtered by the heart. If it stays in the head... It's sterile. It's only after it migrates to the heart and penetrates it that it becomes a treasure and a gift to other people. That's easier said than done, and it will often take time and working through. And it's often said, isn't it, that the 18 inches from here to here, from your head to your heart, is the longest journey on the planet. When I was preparing for this talk, I read the last paragraph with with fresh eyes. Um, And it's there, it's in black and white. Goodness only knows why I hadn't seen it before. Maybe you have. But smuggled inside that last paragraph, and very easy to miss, is the profound statement that when we sin or against or wound a brother or a sister in Christ, we actually wound Jesus, we wound him because he counts every member, every person as a part of him, as a part of his body, if you like. And if we carelessly or perhaps even intentionally hurt a brother or Christ, we're actually sticking the knife in Jesus. It's worth a thought, isn't it? Knowing that should be life-changing. I want to uh, conclude with, uh, with a, a little excerpt. It's not the whole of it, but you may have seen it. The 17th century nun's prayer. Have you seen that ever? No? Uh, it's worth it. It's on the internet. You can find it quite easily. 17th century nun's prayer. Because it illustrates the difference between knowledge that's useful and knowledge that isn't Lord, thou knowest better than I know myself that I'm growing older and someday will be old. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject on every occasion. Release me from the craving to straighten out everybody's affairs. 
Make me thoughtful, but not moody. Helpful, but not bossy. With my vast store of wisdom, it seems a pity not to use it all. But thou knowest, Lord, that I want a few friends at the end. And as a follower of Jesus, I'd rather love a lot than just know a lot. Um, How about you? How about you? Amen.